Hi, I'm Arva. I'm Gracie. I'm Yuritza. I'm Lexi. And you're watching SLPs in a Podcast, Episode 7. Woo! So we have another guest, Lexi Hopkins, which I'm really excited about because, as I mentioned before, she's my second-year buddy who's actually now a full-fledged SLP, and she's going to tell us all about her experience with AAC devices. Thanks for coming on, Lexi. We're really yeah. excited. Thanks for having me. So let's start by telling us a little bit about yourself. So um, I work right now in a residential program for children and adults with a diagnosis of autism spectrum disorder. We're located in upstate New York, um, huge campus, and we have about 150 students on our campus, and then we have a large adult services program. Um, so my caseload right now is primarily young teenagers to like older teenagers, middle high school age. Um, the majority of my caseload, uh, they are nonverbal. I do have many kids on my caseload with high-tech AAC devices. I also have some kids that use lower-tech AAC, and I have some kids that use PECs as well. Um, so part of my training, and, and since I've been working um, at this placement, has included um, taking PECs training. So I'm formally PECs trained. I've also had some formal AAC CEU type courses that I've attended over the last little over a year since I've been working there. Um, and I love it. It's been a little bit different right now during the pandemic, but I love working with the kids that I work with. Um, it's a really fulfilling job, great place to work. That's so interesting because when you're in a residential location, I'm sure things just run differently. What's your day to day like? Exactly. So the students that are in our program, um, we are sort of like their out of school district placement. So their home school district was not able to support their needs to meet their academic and also their safety needs. Um, so the students that come into our program live on our campus 24 hours a day, 365 days a year. They have family members that may come and visit. They may go home on breaks and vacations and things like that, but primarily they live um, on our campus. They have care 24 hours a day. Um, so the majority of our students, in addition to their diagnosis of ASD, they also have an intellectual disability, um, typically with an IQ that's tested below 70 in order to meet the criteria for our program. So these are kids that if they are home with their families, they may not be able to be left alone. They have a lot of personal safety. They don't have a lot of safety awareness um, in things like in emergencies, the house is on fire, you know, knowing to need to run out the door, keep yourself safe, things like that. And the majority of the kids on our campus are also nonverbal. We do have some kids that are verbal and we, you know, work on the skills that they do have to best support their ability to communicate however, you know, whatever works best for them. Um, but it's, it's a pretty big campus. We have, it's their home. So we have a pool, we have a rec center, we have a gym in addition to the separate building that houses the school. So it's kind of like all one big, really nice outdoor campus, lots of buildings, lots of staff. It's, you know, beautiful grounds, nice places to walk. So it's a really great place for the kids that live there. So day to day, typically I'm in the school building. Um, school day runs like eight to three, like any other school. Um, the kids come up from their house on the campus into the school building. They go to their classes and they have their regular school day where they receive their related services. So speech, OT, PT, if they need it. Um, right now with the pandemic though that's been totally shifted we did go remote for a little while we were doing um i was providing telehealth so i was providing teletherapy to the kids in their residence 
Um, and then I was also doing uh, sort of like a distance learning, remote learning, where I was providing work that I wasn't doing hands-on with the kids, but sending to the staff that was working with those children to be able to continue to support the generalization and carryover of skills that we worked on during the school year before school closed. So then right now we're back in person, you know, little by little wearing masks, full PPE. So it's been definitely a shift over the past few weeks, but I'm happy to be back in person. Because it's a residential place, the people caring for them are kind of in the loop of what they need to do to help support them. So exactly. you don't have that challenge of like parents not really knowing how to take over the interactions with the, your clients. Like you kind of have a little more like support. Yeah, and we do a lot of um, hands-on training. So going down to the residences where the kids live to be able to do trainings hands-on to support all of the staff that work with the kids to make sure that kind of like everyone's on the same page with what we're trying to do. Well, that's really interesting. What do you think are the advantages and disadvantages to different types of tech? So different types of technology. Um, so, uh, when I have a student that I'm considering a new device for, or they have never had a device before, maybe they've been a PEX user and they've become very proficient with their PEX book, and now they need to move on to something a little bit more robust with the ability to expand their language. Before I consider what type of programs to try, I think about kind of like the kid as a whole. Are they a teeny tiny little kid? Or are they a really big kid? If they're teeny tiny, they can't be carrying some big giant device around with them. That's not going to be feasible. Um, I look at things like their ability to access a screen. Do they have any interest in a tablet or screen or are they just more content with something that's like a mid or low tech that doesn't have an interactive display? Some students don't have much interest in the more tablet style devices. They just don't see it as something for them to use to communicate. They're not interested in it. So I kind of also look at what they're more interested in and what they would lean towards. And then I also take into consideration any coexisting interfering behaviors that that student may exhibit. Um, so for example, if they're a student that tends to swipe everything off their desk, a $5,000 device that isn't that durable can't be swiped off the desk 10 times a day because it's gonna be broken and then it's no good to anyone when it's not working. So I kind of take all that into consideration, their physical size and their ability to access any type of a higher low tech device, but then also what the whole day will look like, not just during the two 30 minute sessions a week that I may see them, but the rest of the school day, is this something that they're gonna keep on their desk or is it gonna go flying through the air? Are we gonna to try to put it in the garbage can? Things like that. So I, once I kind of you know, have gone through those options of what might be the best fit, then I start actually trialing um, something that I think might work and then kind of adjust and go from there depending on how it works out. Wow, that's, I mean, that's pretty much what we should try to do with any case, right? Look at the bigger picture and kind of paint a picture of the client. And so that still applies to someone who's nonverbal using some kind of technology to communicate. Hey, do you have a favorite device to work with? I do. The Pro Slate 10 with Touch Chat is near and dear to my heart. I think, okay, so the Pro Slate, I don't have one that I could bring home, but it's built on a standard sized iPad. So the Pro Slate 10, I think is the perfect size for like teenagers and as we get older into adulthood because it's about the size of an iPad. Um, it's got a more durable case on it, a big rugged carrying case. 
It's got a sound pod on the back to give you more sound output. So if you're in a loud crowd, you could still order your food and the person across the counter would be able to hear you. Um, so on the ProSlate itself, you have options with the different apps that you choose to use with the user of the device. I have a preference for the touch chat application. Um, there are others on the market. There's Lampworts for Life, there's Proloquo to Go. There's um, a few other ones that are more of the mid-tech range that don't have as many dynamic features as touch chat, Proloquo, Lamp. Um, but I just much prefer touch chat over Proloquo to Go, mostly because of the way the language system is organized on touch chat and the fact that you have access to upgrade that user to a more robust language system as their skills develop. Whereas with Proloquo, you're a little bit more limited. Yeah, so, I, I see what you mean, because when you choose a certain, you're choosing a certain category, you're immediately jump to what you could probably add on to whatever you already chose, right? Is that what you're saying? The folder? Yeah. So okay. for example, like TouchChat has, um, the basic multi-chat 15 program is like a very common one um, that a lot of, ProSlate users with TouchChat have. Um, it looks like this, 15, can't really see it too well, but I'll back it up. Uh, yeah, kind of like 15 icons on the screen. Um, but you don't have a lot of ability to manipulate the grammar, to use adjectives, things like that. It's a lot of nouns, verbs, core vocabulary. Once you have someone that's super proficient with using this, there's an option to upgrade them to the um, multi-chat, but it's got like the word power program behind it. So it looks and feels the same to them, but now when they go to their page to pick out their food or to pick out what clothing they want to wear, suddenly they have much more, you know, little options along the side of the screen to change the noun into a plural, to make a word possessive, things like that. So continue to teach them those skills as we would learn language ourselves when we're young. Great. And everything that you were just saying was kind of bringing back memories from our course in AAC. Like everything sounded so familiar, but I was wholeheartedly expecting you to be like, the Toby Dynavox is my favorite device to work with. No. No, not, <laughs> no really? I will tell you why my honest review about the Dynavox. Because so before I accepted the position as an SLP at the place that I work right now, I worked there part time while I was in graduate school. And my job when I was there part-time was to help fix and edit the communication devices when something went wrong. So when a student needed a new page added or the device fell off the desk, there was a crack in it, it needed to be sent out for repair. The Dynavoxes took forever to be replaced. I had the worst time getting in touch with tech support when anything went wrong. And when I would get someone on the phone with tech support, uh, the often the troubleshooting over the phone would end up being like a 90 minute phone call. And at the end of the 90 minutes, it wasn't resolved and the device still had to be sent in for repair. Meanwhile, with the ProSlate or the NovaChat type devices that come from other companies, you can ha have tech support on the phone within five, 10 minutes. If they don't have a quick answer right over the phone, they give you a return number and they want it to come in for repair. They offer loaners to send out to you to use in the meantime. So as an SLP now where you have a caseload with your mandates. I don't have 90 minutes a day to spend on the phone with Dynavox. Yeah. You know, it's, that's just for me, like not very realistic to be, you know, like, oh, now at the end of the day, I saw my kids, I did all my billing notes, my paperwork is done, I have meetings, and now I have to spend the last hour and a half talk waiting for Dynavox. So that was, you know, I, there are people that have Dynavoxes that love them, that use them. They are very durable when they're, when they're working, but when there is an issue with them, it, it was just very challenging to work through those issues. Students need to be seen during the day. Billing notes need to be entered within 
24 hours, there sometimes just aren't enough hours in the workday to plan on troubleshooting AAC devices that should be working for the price that they cost. There's also, you know, a Dynavox is very expensive. And then when something goes wrong, you know, it's, it's just very labor intensive for the SLP to get fixed. So valuable time that you're the, the stuff that's very easy have, have their device exactly exactly um and since we were talking about devices and the resources that you kind of use with that device can you tell us about some of your favorite um resources or apps that you like to use yeah um so i love the touch chat app um i often use it with my kids that are pex users and i open up a screen that just has yes and no on it just to get them used to kind of like the touch and feel of having some verbal output behind what they're doing during our session. Um, I also really love the BoardMaker website. So BoardMaker Online, it used to be the, the CD like that you'd actually install on the computer, but BoardMakerOnline.com is wonderful. Um, like kind of around the beginning of the pandemic, um, we started using a new website that was new to us. It's called Classflow.com. And on classflow.com, you can upload your own activities to use on tablets and to use on the computer, but you also have access to a large library of other activities that people have shared. So that was a great resource. Um, I really love that. And also, I mean, teachers pay teachers, but everyone loves that website. So <laughs> yeah, but Classflow has been a new find, at least for my department very recently. We've all been liking that website. That's great. Never heard of them before. I kind of want to go check them out now. Yeah. <laughs> All right, and so the next question that we're going to ask you is my favorite question to ask. How do you use your AAC devices with your clients um, regarding feeding? How okay. do you use it in a feeding session? Sure. So um, when I started working at the, the school that I work at now, um, there was a feeding program that had started, and I was interested in being one of the providers, so my job sent me to the SOS conference last August, so it did not cost me anything. They are, it's wonderful, like, so they really support our continuing education, so I'm SOS trained. We started a feeding program, and this fall we're anticipating having the program with a student that is an AAC user, so my plan for him and what I've already started kind of like making notes for and, and prepping on my end, was to make sure that on his device he has pages with options that contain the vocabulary that we'll be using during the sessions. So during SOS we'll be using a lot of adjectives, talking about a lot of colors, textures, tastes, feels, shapes, things like that. I want to make sure that he has access to all of that on one page. I, th I thought about calling it like the food school vocab page so he could navigate to that page and then have access to that, including things like I like this, I don't like this, just so that he's able to voice, you know, what he's thinking and how he's feeling. So that was my plan, you know, going forward. Things got pushed back a little bit with the pandemic, but that's my plan. I think that's so great because I think that we underestimate um, the power of communication when we're feeding as well and just eating. I think it's such a, it's like such an essential thing for us. When we have dinner, when we have lunch, we're communicating. Exactly. Um, breakfast, we're communicating. I want to be able to communicate how I feel about the food. And I think that's great that you have the vocabulary set for him. Yep. That's amazing. And I'm interested because I haven't used an AAC device with a feeding session before, but I have, you know, simulated language. So it sounds very similar. Yeah. Um, next question. So how do you manage behaviors during training? So um, at the school that I work at, we use a lot of positive behavioral supports. 
So we try to be very proactive in anticipating how that student may react in different situations. So we work pretty closely with the clinical department. So um, we have some board certified behavior analysts that are assigned to different classes and different students that work continuously to come up with resources that we as the staff working with those kids can read and learn to understand what might be an early warning sign for that student. So for that particular student, if they start humming, does that mean that they're getting, you know, upset about something or that they're seeking an escape from that activity? So we try to learn our students and really get to know them very well to anticipate what we may need to do to best support them. So for example, some students do really well using a first then visual. Some students do really well with a token board. Some students need a reminder of what the expectations are. So I need to have safe hands. I need to have listening ears. So it really just depends on what will work best for them. But we use a lot of visuals. So their desk might have visuals taped right onto it. We carry our token boards with us. I have first thens, I have sentence strips. So I keep a lot of those things handy and work with that student's behavior analyst to kind of just have a, a good idea of what we can do to anticipate their needs to be able to um, pre hopefully prevent any behaviors from escalating during sessions. And have you, I know this is gonna go back to feeding, but have you considered doing contingent reinforcement with feeding like two spoons or like one lick, then um, sh your favorite show? Has that been an idea? So the program that we've done, we, we try to follow the SOS protocol pretty, pretty much as it's written. Um, so we have our hierarchy set up with the different foods that we're presenting. We start with food number one. It's always a highly preferred food. And then we have usually 11 or 12 foods chained off of that. Um, there are no other reinforcers. We don't bring YouTube videos in. We don't bring any preferred toys, nor do we bring any other preferred foods aside from food number one. So food number one, they get their potato chips, and then we move on to like the baked tater tot. And then, you know, we move like through our hierarchy. And the minute a student starts to get um, either a little bit, just appear like they're a little bit agitated or not liking one of the items, we encourage them to interact with that item where they're most comfortable without pushing them too much. And then we move on and introduce the next item and don't make a big deal out of what they were starting to have a behavior when they saw or had to interact with. And we never force them to taste anything, you know, kind of just following the tenets of the SOS program. So we don't introduce any other reinforcers. And then after the session, their food school session is done with us. Um, they go back to their classroom and they don't see us as, you know, like a speech person that gives them their candy during their sessions. It's very different during the feeding sessions. They don't see us as like, oh, she has a snack cabinet. I'm going to go get my gummy bears. I'm going to sit and do my speech work. So it's kind of interesting that they learn that we play a different role when we're doing the feeding therapy sessions. It's interesting. Yeah, thank you. All right. So um, our next question, what is the hardest part about training um a new AAC device is it the training family members I know can be it's a little bit different in your case because it's residential so is it training the staff is it the kid themselves what's the hardest part about the training process it's definitely getting the buy-in from everyone else that works with that kid because we will remind them that we're only with them twice a week for 30 minutes maybe three times a week for 30 minutes and then any other times that we're in their classroom of course we're there you know we'll interact with them with their device or their system but we really work with the teachers the teaching assistants and then down in their residence the residential staff we go to the house and do trainings and really try to 
kind of remind the staff that the same way that a young child that's learning to speak for the first time will only continue to learn the more that they're exposed to hearing language. So for the, our students that get devices, they learn through babbling on the device. So a lot of times we hear like, oh yeah, he has the device, but he's just stimming on it. He's just pressing the same button. He likes, they like to hear the same sound. That's how we learn where things are though. So a little bit of that is okay and to be encouraged. It's when it becomes that it's interfering with your school lesson. And then it's the same thing we would say to a verbal student. You need to have a quiet mouth during morning meeting. You need to have, you know, like we would say to the kids with devices, you're, you need to have a quiet mouth during morning meeting. We're not gonna play around on the device until it's our turn to raise our hand and answer a question. So kind of just teaching the teachers that they, these kids with devices should be given the same expectations as your students that may be verbal. So encourage them to still be quiet with their hands folded when it's not their turn to speak. When it is their turn to speak, encourage them to go right onto that device and answer their question. Um, so it's definitely getting the staff buy-in um, because we have that just limited time with those kids. And the more time we spend with them, we can make great gains with them during individual therapy sessions, but that doesn't generalize necessarily to all of their environments unless other people are using that device across all those settings. So we do a lot of trainings. Um, and especially right now, we've been providing some of our sessions in the residences. So now we're like in the house with the kids, with the staff that have been with them since March when the pandemic started. And now we're able to really like sit on the couch together while the TV's on in their house, grab the device and explore, model some language on it and show the staff that it's not something to be afraid of. I think a lot of adults, especially if they don't, if they're not very tech savvy, they feel intimidated by the device. It's an expensive piece of equipment. I don't want to get in trouble if it gets broken. But, you know, we kind of just remind them, it's, so you're not going to break it by playing around on it, by making sentences and going around flipping between vocabulary pages. You're not going to break anything. So don't be afraid to, to play with the device really is what we, we try to encourage. That's awesome. I have to admit, I, I really maybe like ignorantly so, didn't even think about babbling on a device. Like that, that's awesome. And it's a great way to explain it to people because I feel like if I had seen a kid like that, I would have been like, wow, okay, maybe we should move to a low tech because he just stims on this. Like, I don't know if I would have thought about it like a babble. Right. And that's really also, interesting. And we also try to honor when the student says something on the device, whether they intended it or not. So for example, I had a student, he's still my student now, but he was like a little bit younger when I first started working with him. And he had his device, we're in the hallway coming back from our session and he's playing around on one of the screens and he hits the word old. So he got to his adjectives and then he hit old. And I touched his arm and I said, did you just call me old? And he started laughing. He had an intent, you know, he was kind of just playing around navigating, you know, learning his own device. But when I gave that very appropriate response to what he said with the device, he looked at me like, wow, like I kind of just made a joke with her and was laughing. You know, like those are the types of things when they, when a student has that spontaneous and utterance that they produce with their device and you react appropriately to it. So they, you know, call someone a, a funny name or, you know, make a funny request or like, you know, ask for a kangaroo. Like, well, we're not in Australia. There's no kangaroos here. Kind of just giving an, a, a response to what they've said rather than just ignoring and trying to correct it. That's how, the, you know, they learn what those words mean. I think that's great. That's awesome. It's yeah, amazing. It really is awesome. Yeah, I find um, also even like following their lead, like 
valuing when they're frustrated and they don't want to participate it's like okay well like how do you feel tell me how you feel how can what do you want like what should we do like just like valuing whatever they say and how they're feeling with the device too it doesn't have to be so strict and rigid that it's like you have to write the sentence you know kind of like going with the flow i think being flexible something that i try to do too um but yeti while we have you here uh conversely Lexi has uh, the residential program, but your kids are day-to-day. They're, they come to school and then they're home with their parents or they're telehealth. So how are you handling the training? Is it a little bit different than what Lexi said or do you like agree with it's more so the people in the environment than the kid that's the harder part to train? Um, I think it's the environment for sure. I think the staff isn't as educated like in how to use the device how to incorporate it into the classroom there's teachers who are really great and then there's teachers who you know the child is stimming on it so they keep it away because they just can't deal with the child stimming on their device um so i i think my main the main thing that i see so far is is kind of it being used outside of the therapy room because I'm the main person working. Like like you said, 30 minutes twice a week is not enough for it to generalize. And um, so I think that's definitely one of the big challenges that I'm seeing. So the students that I see are on more high-tech devices, ProLoco to go. That's like their, that's what we like, the, ma- the common one that's, that's being used. Um, Right, so they are actually bused from outside school districts. So I would say like they're still taking at, taken out of their environment and they come to our to our school. Um, so I it all it honestly just depends on the parent, but most parents are very interested in how to um, organize their child's device, how to incorporate it into the home. I haven't seen too much, but from what I remember and like what I hear with my supervisors, um, they just have a good relationship with the speech pathologist in order to ask for things that's going on at home, things that they can incorporate. So I think in that way, they're good, but um, I guess it depends. It's, it really honestly depends on every family, depends on who the teacher is. It kind of, It's just hard. It's not a universal thing that's known that this is their communication device and this is how they speak and we need to honor what they say and incorporate it into their daily lives. Like that's still like a work in progress. I think especially in public school districts where it's just not as pushed. I think my school district is good, but I, you know, I think that there could definitely be more, more, um, more education on it. Even I feel like I don't know enough about AAC. Every time I talk to someone about AAC, I feel like I learn something new. We took classes, used devices with kids, but still there's always another thing to learn with AAC. It's just not talked about enough, I don't think. And I think the most important part is like the advocating for AAC devices. Like I've experienced, you know, in the hospital placement, like having to advocate for one of my patients to have a low-tech communication board and then getting the staff input in to actually use it because he was nonverbal completely as a result of like different neurological deficits. But I feel like advocacy is like our biggest, our strength in this profession. I feel like we need to use it more often. And so 
courses on just advocacy and like honoring your client and your patient, your students' words and being able to like take any little mistake that happens even on the device, like to make it a learning, a lesson. So I don't know, but I thought that was great. Um, so how do you find financing affects your decisions? Does it matter as much when it has comes from a school or is it still family funded? What's going on with all that? I, if I'm seeking a new device for a student, um, I will typically try to go through their medical insurance. So whether it's Medicare, Medicaid, private insurance, um, there are device like sales reps that are great to work with that will kind of walk you through the paperwork process. Um, I do believe that they earn a commission off of the device once it is funded. So that's their incentive for helping you get the device funded. So basically if a school district funds that device, they will require that the device come back to them when a student is 21 or graduates from their district. And a lot of times parents move, kids move school districts, then the district wants the device back. The new district doesn't have a new device set up yet. So it gets a little bit hairy when the district is the one that pays for the device. It also can take a very long time to get things fixed um, if the device breaks. And if the district agrees to fix it, it just may be a very long time before you get it back. When the parents buy devices, um, if they buy an iPad with a rugged case and put an app on it, we, you know, parents are obviously are always welcome to do that. However, if the device gets broken, like more than the two times that Apple Care will cover, they are out now the cost of a brand new iPad if that Apple Care warranty no longer will cover the repair that's needed. If, I mean, and if it's in a case like this and just falls off of a desk or is slid across the table and falls off and the screen cracks, that counts as like one of the major repairs for Apple Care. So parents that don't mind paying for those repairs, you know, like that's certainly a great option, but going through the elaborate and lengthy funding process with insurance is something that I have done. Um, and it takes a while and I did get a rebuttal and I had to calm myself down before I wrote the answer to the rebuttal because I was not happy with what they said in the rebuttal. Uh, and I can touch on that a little bit more, but um, it's very rewarding when you finally get the notice that like Medicare, Medicaid, like Centers for Medicaid Services has agreed to pay for the $6,000 pro slate that you have been wanting for this student for a long time. And then two weeks later, it shows up on your desk, like all shiny and new, ready to set up. So that's very rewarding. Advocating for your patient, doing everything that you needed to do with all your trials, your data, your documentation, scanning the paperwork in, getting a script signed from the physician, like all this running around is so totally worth it when it is finally funded and the student's family paid zero dollars. You know, like that's, and now that student, that's their personal property. So just because they turn 21, like their school district's not going to come ask for it back. It's theirs through lifetime as long as the device lasts. You want, I can touch on the, the rebuttal process. With yeah, funding. Okay. please do. So, so basically, when you submit an evaluation to have a new device funded through insurance, so whether it's private insurance, Medicare, Medicaid, um, there's a lengthy eval. It's like a 10 or 11 page eval. It makes what you did in grad school look short. It's going to be the longest eval you've ever written with the most specific information about what you've ever written. You need to include information in that eval about why other devices were ruled out. So why was a pointing book not appropriate for this kid? And you have to actually say, because someone needs to put the pictures in it, because the pictures get lost, because it doesn't have the ability to create novel phrases that aren't already in there. So you like, 
you, it's almost like a template letter. You have to include all of the reasons that other systems were not appropriate. And you have to include a statement that because this person um, doesn't use verbal speech to communicate, that that is likely not to change anytime soon. Because if the insurance company thinks like, oh, are they not using verbal speech temporarily because of some sort of medical diagnosis or injury? Or is this a chronic and stable sort of condition, you know, sort of um, condition that they'll be in where they won't be using verbal speech spontaneously anytime soon, based on your professional opinion. So I submitted the lengthy eval. I had to get a script signed by a, the student's physician. I had to get chart notes from the student's medical record, whole bunch of things done. Now that whole packet gets reviewed by one of the insurance company reviewers and they work for the insurance company. It's their job to save the insurance company as much money as they can. You also will never find out what this person's actual title was. So it's often not an SLP reading what you've submitted, which was the case with the one I got back like a month ago. So the rebuttal that came back said, this student has had a pro slate for six years and it seems like all they use it for is to request what they want, answer some basic questions and answer yes, no questions. Why should we buy another $6,000 device because this one's charging poor or you know, whatever is broken. And I like had to sit back for a minute and then I started typing my answer and I went like full Dr. Franklin, Dr. McHenry and my answer. And I used an APA citation for the ASHA communication bill of rights, <laughs> which I think really just like probably sent them over the top, but I was not willing to go back and forth, back and forth with someone that was not an SLP with continued rebuttals and responses to try to get a device funded. So basically in my response, I said, the student in addition to their diagnosis of ASD has an intellectual disability. That does not preclude him from needing access to make his wants and needs known. He's able to ask for basic, um, you know, like when he has a headache, he's able to use the device to express that. Having an intellectual disability does not preclude your right to communicate. So I basically wrote a lengthy paragraph to that point, cited the communication bill of rights. And, you know, so for someone that may be a physical therapist or a nurse practitioner at the insurance company reading it, I'm sure they got that response and were like, wow, she's right. That makes sense because 48 hours later it was funded and shipped. So it was things like advocating for, you know, like we are the expert. Don't assume that the person reading the eval making the decision about paying for this big $10,000 expense, if it's a device that needs um, to be mounted to a wheelchair, like they get into the tens of thousands of dollars. Don't assume that the person reading your work is an SLP with as much knowledge as you. You are the expert and it's up to us to really put in writing why this person not only deserves, but needs what you're recommending to be able to get their communicative wants and needs met. So that was my soapbox about the rebuttals because I wrote that, yes. rebuttal, signed it with my whole credentials. Like I like really like wrote the MS like very clearly all <laughs> out on pen, like very clearly and it was approved and funded. So don't be afraid to like, you know, say, you know, it, it may need to be said if the person reading it is not an SLP and do, is, is not familiar with what AAC is. You know, they're seeing it as just a dollar sign on a piece of paper. So, yeah, don't be afraid to stand up for what you know that your patient needs. I love that. I love this. I feel so empowered right now. I need someone yeah. to advocate for. <laughs> <laughs> you have your clients, Gracie. I do my clients. Actually, that brings me to the next question. 
Good job, Yanni. So this one is one that is burning in me to know the answer to. I currently have uh, three kids I've tried to trial low-tech communication boards on because I'm doing telehealth. I can't be there with them. I've laminated sheets. I've sent them to the families in the good old snail mail um, so that they can have them wherever they go because if they just print them, then, you know, they get messed up and I feel bad. Um, but it's been so difficult to try to teach them how to use it via the computer when I can't even show the parents. So I'm kind of, you know, sometimes I'll share my screen and I'll say, okay, like, you see that button? Like, have them press this button or, you know, or tap it with their fingers or take their hands. And, like, how did you manage your clients with telehealth? Because presumably they all needed this extra assistance. And I find it such a struggle with, like, the three that I have right now. Right. So once we started doing the teletherapy sessions, we kind of were like given the um, directive sort of from like the powers that be that we are not targeting their formal goals. It's a pandemic. We're not meeting their regular mandates. Their quarterly narrative for the end of the fourth quarter of this school year is going to be some crazy note that there was a pandemic and the goals couldn't be formally addressed using in-person therapy. So that's basically like what our paperwork looked like at the end of the quarter. But the sessions, um, I would do a lot of reading a book and providing a pointing board that went along with the book with some of the core vocabulary that were contained within the book and then some of the more fringe vocab that were specific to that story. Sending it to the student wherever they were, when then it was printed out, didn't need to be laminated or anything, but just having them look at the screen okay look like i found blue on my screen find blue on your paper and then encouraging whether it was the parents with them or the staff to just make sure that they're looking try to make sure that they're attending to the page so i wasn't focusing on have your device like you know i want to see the device on the screen because that was just so difficult and given you know the our guys like when we were doing sessions there were sometimes seven or eight kids that all live in like one house together with staff so whether you were doing like an individual or a group session to try to even see that many kids on the screen I mostly just focused on social interaction sitting all together on the couch coming up one at a time to wave hello come up one at a time to vote for your favorite ice cream flavor after we read a book about ice cream cones something like that just to continue the social interaction and the the turn-taking activities and giving materials to your peers, doing things like that. And I didn't focus on the actual taking data on let's trial this system or let's trial that system because it was just so challenging. And it's you, you have to have either staff or parents that are so proficient and invested and that's what's hard. It, you know, parents are working from home too. They have other kids in the background. And so it was, it's been challenging for everyone, definitely. Yeah. I, I don't even know how you did a group session with telehealth. Trying to think about one kid is well, already stressing me out. I thought ahead of time about what candy the whole house might like and made sure that the staff had like a bag of Sour Patch Kids available. And then I would say, okay, like nice job sitting to start your group speech work. Everyone can have a Sour Patch. And then the kids were like, there's a potential to have candy. Like I'll sit here and listen to whatever book she's reading us. I'll answer whatever questions because I know that there's a reinforcer coming. 
So we really used just a lot of edible reinforcers, kept the sessions, you know, kind of like short, sweet to the point, 25, 30 minutes. And, you know, we were all done um, just, you know, to make it so that the kids looked forward to it every week. I would play music and they, I would have them up dancing in their living room. Like it was, I mean, it was really cute, but I tried to make it a lot you know, easier, fun, you know, a little bit different than what I would do traditionally in their classroom, pushing in. Well, those are all of our questions. Thank you so much, Lexi, for coming. I feel smarter already. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. This is a lot of fun. This was, and we learned so much information from you, I feel like, and I hope the listeners will agree as well, but I feel like everything you talked about was really important for anyone who's like joining the field, who's in the field already, and even just some students who are taking AAC courses right now. Definitely. There are also like for anyone interested in learning more about AAC, whether you're looking to go to grad school, in grad school, or you're an SLP now, um, there are a lot of courses that are either online, like webinars that are free, very inexpensive. A lot of the companies that make the devices actually offer free CEUs or like free interactive webinars on their websites because they're trying to just get more awareness about their products. Because if you're an SLP that knows about their products, you may result in them making some more money when you, you know, when people buy them. So look online on, you know, on like TouchChat, Proloquo, like the ProSlates, the NovaChats, there are a lot of free resources out there. Don't be afraid to jump into the world of AAC. It's not scary. It seems scary in the beginning, but it's really not. It's really not. Definitely learned a lot. And I definitely feel like I want to learn more. You know, I definitely want to just like improve my skills. Look into those CEUs. Yeah, for sure. Definitely. For sure. I was writing like mental notes. Uh -huh. <laughs> <laughs> the whole time. I was like jotting down to the side a couple times. Yeah. Thank you again, Lexi, for joining us today and talking about all things AAC. We all learned so much and we hope our listeners really enjoyed this episode. Please tune in to next week's episode. It's going to be all things feeding. <laughs> Please don't forget to follow us and subscribe on YouTube for SLPs in a podcast and our individual Instagrams, um, Arvati SLP, Gracie Z SLP, and Yuritza SLP, as well as the SLPs in a podcast Instagram feeds where you can find out about new episodes and upcoming things and fun giveaways. Please pay attention to our page. <laughs> well, thank you again to Lexi for joining us on our episode. We hope that you had fun on, in the pod and we hope that all the listeners enjoyed this episode and learned some more information. So thank you and good night, everyone. Good night. Bye. Bye.